Okay, Genesis chapter 1 in your Bible, which should be fairly easy to find. Genesis chapter 1 and verse 1. What this lesson is, is a studio recording of a Sunday school class uh, for which the recording went missing, but it's part of our series from the first two chapters of the book of Genesis, and this lesson is entitled An Overview of Apologetics. Let's read, or if you can, just recite Genesis chapter 1 and verse number 1 together. First verse of the first book of the Bible, first verse of the first chapter of the first book of the Bible says this. Here's God's first words to man. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. The Bible never, ever argues for the existence of God. It simply starts with the assumption that God exists. That is a safe and a proper assumption because as we learned in Romans chapter 1, the knowledge of God is a knowledge that is placed within every man at birth. That's Romans 1.19. That is a knowledge that is evident to anyone who can open their eyes and behold the creation. That's Romans chapter 1 verse 20. Man has to work hard to fight against that knowledge, reject that knowledge, to, to, to deny what they know in their heart and their conscience to be true. That's Romans 1 verses 21 and 22. And the reason that people work hard to fight against the knowledge that is just innate within them has nothing to do with lack of evidence or lack of arguments. It has to do with a prejudice against God, and that prejudice against God has to do with an, an, an unwillingness to acknowledge God's authority. Psalm 14, 1 and Psalm 53, 1 both say, the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. That's not the entirety of the verse. The rest of the verse goes on to explain, corrupt are they. They have done abominable works. So it's not that there's no good proof for God. It's just that we don't necessarily need the proof for God. The proof is all around us. The Bible doesn't need to start uh, by laying out all the evidences and the philosophical reasoning why man should believe in God's existence. Man does believe in God's existence. Man fights hard against that knowledge. Man holds that truth, though he does so. In unrighteousness, Romans 1.18. In the previous lesson, we covered four different four different arguments for the existence of God. It's not that there aren't good evidences. It's not that there aren't good arguments. Here are four of them. The cosmological argument, that's the argument from cause, that God is the first uncaused cause, that he brought everything into uh, being. Revelation 3.14, Jesus Christ is the amen, the beginning of the creation of God. Uh, the tele teleological argument, second argument, the teleological argument, that's the argument from design, the intelligent design argument. Wherever there's uh, design, there's intelligence. Wherever there's complexity, uh, there is intelligence behind that complexity. Wherever there's information, there's intelligence behind that uh, information and so uh, true science, the the study of the natural world and the universe, what the knowledge we can ob obtain by experimentation and observation that points directly at the God who's behind it all. That's the teleological 
argument. Uh, you can't have a painting without a painter. You can't have a, a book without an author. You can't have a watch without somebody who designed it, somebody who put it together, and the universe the very same way. That's the teleological argument, very strong argument for the existence of God. The ontological, uh, just an argument from necessity. We have this concept, this knowledge within us. The moral argument is the argument from conscience, from Romans 2, that God has put his law in our hearts. We all recognize the distinction between right and wrong when someone does something to us that is wrong and we judge it as so. You're not okay when people lie to you. You're not okay when people mistreat you. You're not okay when people steal from you. Why? Because those things are wrong. But it's just as wrong when someone else does it to you as it is when you do those things to someone else. And so Romans 2 says, when you recognize wrongdoing in others, you're just condemning yourself because you've done the very same things. Now, all of those would fall under the heading of what we would call classical apologetics. Classical apologetics. So we're going to talk about what that means and give you an overview of the different types of apologetics. Uh, but before we do that, Let's turn to the book of Proverbs, Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 14. Uh, Proverbs chapter 10 and verse 14, I believe this is a very important verse. I cite it often. And the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 10 and verse number 14, wise men, you want to be wise? Here's what wise men do. Wise men lay up knowledge, but the mouth of the foolish is near destruction. Wise men lay up knowledge. They get more than they need. Okay, you want to be rich? How do you get rich? Well, you make more money than you spend. You get more than you need and you store it up. You lay it up. Now, you ought to lay up treasure in heaven. That's more important than physical treasure. But, but wise men lay up knowledge. That is, they obtain more knowledge than they can use. Wisdom, the application of knowledge. In order to apply knowledge, you have to have knowledge to start with. So, so, so wise men, here's what they do. They, they lay up Knowledge. I don't want to get bogged down with uh, this study of apologetics necessarily. We're going to cover it uh, this week. We did in the last session. Then we're going to move on to the passage in Genesis chapter 1. But I believe it is interesting. I believe it is helpful. And I want to be clear, this information is not going to hurt you to learn. Let me illustrate that. Our pastor, James W. Knox, he, he does what he does for the Lord. He is used in the way that he is used by the Lord in his preaching and in his teaching and in his books and in his writing, partly because of all the time that he has invested in school. And I didn't say Bible school. He spent a semester in Bible school. I'm, I'm talking about the years he has invested in school and, and, and outside of school in studying in not just the Bible, but studying history and studied, studying literature and geography and, and sociology because he's able to draw upon all those things and use that knowledge as he uh, teaches uh, God's Word. So, so it's not going to hurt you to gain knowledge. In fact, it, it'll help you in a lot of ways. And if nothing else, I hope to make it clear how just a basic understanding of, of, of these concepts are going to be helpful in your witnessing. Okay, so apologetics, what are we talking about? We'll start by defining the, the term, the root word of apologetics is apology. Apology. That's one of the many words in the English language that is 
devolved along with the culture. When somebody today speaks of apology, they're talking about some admission of error or discourtesy that's accompanied by an expression of regret. Apology means, I'm sorry, I did something wrong, I said something wrong, I want you to forgive me, I wish I wouldn't have done it, I wish I wouldn't have said it. It's often accompanied by some kind of a lame excuse or justification. But go back to the 1828 dictionary, which is 200 years later than the King James Bible, an apology was something that was said or written to defend a belief, a position, or otherwise that other people criticize. So, so an apology, it once stood for defense. Not in a negative sense. It did not have a negative connotation. It, it was just a defense for for my position, for my belief, maybe for my actions. But because man's defenses of himself are usually so poor, the word has come to mean, <laughs> I'm sorry, that was that was dumb, that was bad, that was wrong, I shouldn't have done it. So apologetics is the branch of study that, de- that deals with the defense and establishment of the Christian faith. Let me repeat that. Apologetics is the branch of study that deals with the defense and establishment of of the Christian faith. There are organizations who are dedicated to apologetics, and and, and I believe it's important. I believe it's beneficial. I believe it's helpful. Let me show you from the Bible at the outset of this lesson why every Christian should be at least somewhat involved in apologetics. Jude chapter 1, as if there were another chapter in the book of Jude, Jude 1 In verse number 3, the Bible says this. Jude 1.3, Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. Here's why you have to be able to defend and establish the Christian faith Because it is going to come under scrutiny. It is going to stand up to opposition. In the last days, there will be scoffers. 2 Peter chapter 3. Let me give you another verse on why Christians ought to be involved, at least to to, to some extent, in apologetics. 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify, 1 Peter 3.15, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You ought to be ready to reason the Christian faith. The Lord said, Isaiah 1, 18, come now, let us reason together. Faith is not in opposition to reason. The Bible is not in opposition to reason. God is not in opposition to to reason. In fact, we ought to have some reasons ready for why we believe the Bible to be the Word of God, why we believe Jesus Christ to be the Savior, why do we believe the world to be created in the beginning just like the Lord said. Be ready to give an answer to every man that asketh you. Along with that, Colossians chapter 4, a very similar statement made in Colossians chapter number 4 in verse number 6, Colossians 4 and verse 6, this in the context of verse 3 where Paul says, with all praying also for us that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ, 
for which I am also in bonds, verse 4, that I may make it manifest as I ought to speak, walk in wisdom toward them that are without redeeming the time. So Paul says, I, I want to make use of the time that I have been given to declare the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want to be bold in my proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Pray for me that I would do these things. Verse 6, let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt. Not always with salt, seasoned with grace. Let your speech be always with grace, seasoned with salt, that ye may know how ye ought to answer every man. In the context of the bold declaration of the gospel, I need to know how to answer the questions that are that are inevitable, that will inevitably arise as I speak the mystery of Christ. Now, what is that going to necessitate? Proverbs chapter 15 and verse 28. Proverbs 15 and verse 28. The Bible says, The heart of the righteous studieth to answer, but the mouth of the wicked poureth out evil things. If I am going to be ready to give an answer, 1 Peter 3.15, if, if, if I'm going to know how to answer, Colossians 4.6, then I'm going to have to study Proverbs 15.28. In fact, the Bible repeats that, 2 Timothy 2.15, Study to show thyself approved unto God a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, and verse 20, still laying the foundation of why a, a discussion of apologetics is proper, is biblical, is beneficial. 1 Timothy 6 and verse number 20. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust. Cross-reference that in the book of Thessalonians. We, we have been put in trust with the gospel. The reason that I need to be able to provide evidence for the existence of God is not so I can win an argument with an atheist. It's so that I can get him to the gospel. The reason I need to be able to answer some, some, some questions that arise, 1 Timothy 6.20 from the oppositions of science, falsely so-called, is not so I can be smarter than the person that I'm arguing with on the street corner. It's so that I can get that person to the gospel. O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science, falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. 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 We want to be able to convert those which have erred concerning the faith, to turn them to the faith who have been uh, turned aside from the faith, and, 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 and so-called science is one of the devil's uh, greatest tools, and so it's helpful to have some, some apologetics, some defense of the truth, some establishment of the truth that's ready. Titus chapter 1, verse number 9, Titus 1, verses 9 through 11, holding fast the faithful word as he hath been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine, both to exhort and to convince the gainsayers. For there are many unruly and vain talkers and deceivers, especially they of the circumcision, whose mouths must be stopped, who subvert whole houses, teaching things which they ought not for filthy lucre's sake. Maybe I'll not be able to convert the atheist, but maybe I'll be able to keep the atheist from getting converts. Maybe I won't reclaim this, uh, this, 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 this backslidden... Christian 
who has allowed so-called science to make his faith shipwreck. Maybe I'm not going to win him, but maybe I'll keep him from winning others to his position. Okay, so so three branches, three types of apologetics, and this is helpful to understand as we pursue uh, this study of how to be prepared to contend for the faith. Classical apologetics, we mentioned, and evidential apologetics. We'll start with these. Classical apologetics and evidential apologetics. We group these together because they are very similar, very related. Classical apologetics stresses rational arguments for the existence of God. Classical apologetics stresses rational arguments for the existence of God. We're using our God-given human reasoning to arrive at the truth that he's placed within us. Now, now alongside that, evidential apologetics. Evidential apologetics stresses data or data, however you want to say it, information, proofs from history, science, or other branches of study that lend credence to the validity of Scripture, the reality of the miracles, for instance, the resurrection. So so the proofs we study, the arguments we study, the evidences we study for the existence of God, those would fall under the heading of classical apologetics. The cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument, the moral argument, that's all classical apologetics. When we move into the realm of evidential apologetics, we're talking about things like pointing to history and archaeology and science that lines up with the Bible as as evidence for, as proof for divine inspiration. We, we, We know that this is a miraculous book that came from God, and here's all this data that lines up with that belief. Evidential apologetics would be pointing to the many fulfilled prophecies as, as evidence for the inspiration of Scripture. Evidential apologetics would be listing the many different evidences for the resurrection of Jesus Christ as validation for the Christian faith. That is what sets Bible Christianity apart from any other religion in the world. That is what proves that Jesus Christ was the Son of God. It's what proves he has the power uh, to forgive sins. And, and, and there is ample proof. There is, Acts 1 says, infallible proof eyewitness testimony for the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Evidential apologetics would be studying manuscript history to back up the authenticity of the New Testament scriptures. Generally speaking, evidential apologetics stresses data that supports the miraculous evidences of the biblical accounts, thereby authenticating the Bible and the claims and deeds of Jesus. There is a valid place for these branches of the defense of the Christian faith. It's important, though, to recognize these are not without their limits. Okay, uh, Some of this information on classical evidential apologetics comes from a, 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 a page, an article on carm.org, Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, carm.org. Org. Let me read to you a little bit from an article on the Answers in Genesis website to illustrate what I mean about some of the limits of classical and evidential apologetics. We're imagining a hypothetical conversation between a Christian and an atheist. Try to follow. 
The Christian argues everything with a beginning requires a cause. The universe has a beginning and therefore requires a cause. That cause is God. You might recognize that argument. That's the cosmological argument. But the atheist retorts, even if it were true that everything with a beginning requires a cause, which is is, is fairly obvious, but he's, he's questioning it because it backs up his belief system. How do you know the cause of the universe is God? Why not a Big Bang? Maybe the universe sprang from another universe, as some physicists now believe. Okay, so, 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 so there was a counter-argument to the argument. There was an attempt to debunk the claim that is logical and that makes sense, but there's there's a, there's, there's a response that's given. The Christian says, The living creatures of the world clearly exhibit design. Therefore, they must have a designer, and that designer is God. Here's the teleological argument. Good argument. Strong argument. But the atheist retorts, The living creatures only appear to be designed. Natural selection can account for this apparent design. Poorly adapted organisms tend to die off and don't pass on their genes. So uh, there, there, there's a counter-argument to the very strong and good argument. The Christian says, but living creatures have irreducible complexity. All their essential parts must be in place at the same time or the organism dies. God must have created these parts all at the same time. A gradual evolutionary path simply won't work. I agree. Completely true. The atheist says, just because you can't imagine a gradual stepwise way of constructing an organism doesn't mean there isn't one. Totally false, but in this back and forth argument, he feels like he's got something to stand on because he's got these answers ready. The Christian says, but DNA has information in it. The instructions to form a living being and information never comes about by chance. It always comes from a mind. DNA proves that God created the first creatures. The atheist, there could be, notice notice there, it, it, it's, it's always could be, uh, Darwin over and over and over and over, over again in Origin Species, we may well suppose... There could be an undiscovered mechanism that generates information in the DNA. <laughs> now, 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 we are we are accused of standing on scant evidence of of exercising blind faith. There could be an undiscovered mechanism <laughs> that generates information in the DNA. Give us time; we'll eventually discover it. Time is always the magic ingredient. Even if DNA did come from intelligence. Why would you think that intelligence is God? Maybe aliens seeded life on the earth. Uh, that 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 line of thinking from the brilliant minds like Richard Dawkins. The Christian, the resurrection of Jesus proves the existence of God. Only God can raise the dead. We're moving into evidential apologetics. But you don't really have any proof that Jesus rose from the dead, though we do. This section of the Bible is simply an embellished story. Even if it were true, it proves nothing. Perhaps under certain rare chemical conditions, a dead organism can come back to life. It certainly doesn't mean that there is a God. You see how hard um, man's sinful nature fights against the knowledge that's placed within him, but, but, but there's that fight. Christian says, the Bible claims that God exists, and that's his word to us. Furthermore, the Bible says it must be true since God uh, cannot lie. I, I'm not going to continue with this. The back and forth, the back and forth, the back and forth, the back and forth. All of the facts used by the Christian in the hypothetical conversation are true. God's the first cause. He is the designer of life. He is the resurrected Christ. He is the author of Scripture. He is the Savior of Christians. But none of those above arguments can 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 concretely prove that God exists, there still is an element of faith that is required. And furthermore, for each of the arguments, the atheist invents a rescue device. He proposes an explanation for the evidence compatible with his worldview and his 
belief that God does not exist, more accurately, his unbelief in the existence of God. Not necessarily the most valid, perhaps the most effective arguments for God deal with worldviews and not simply isolated fact. The, the best arguments for God's existence are big picture kinds of arguments because the atheist is in, intellectually schizophrenic. The atheist is intellectually schizophrenic. Believing in God, but believing that he does not believe in God. Believing in God, Romans 1. Everybody does. That knowledge is within him, but he believes that he doesn't believe. We do not really need to give the atheist any more specific evidences for God's existence. He already knows in his heart that God exists. He just doesn't want to believe it. Our goal is to expose the atheist's suppressed knowledge of God, leading to the third type or the third branch of apologetics, presuppositional apologetics. So we've got classical apologetics. We've got evidential apologetics, classical uh, apologetics based on reason, classical, uh, or, I'm sorry, evidential apologetics based on evidence, data, Information presuppositional apologetics deals with presuppositions. That is an assumption that is taken for granted. A Christian presuppositionalist presupposes God's existence and argues from that perspective to show the validity of Christian theism. This position also presupposes the truth of the Christian scripture and relies on its validity and power of the gospel to change lives. From the scriptures we see, the unbeliever is sinful in his mind, Romans 1, unable to understand spiritual things, 1 Corinthians 2. This means that no matter how convincing the evidence or how good the logic, an unbeliever cannot come to the faith because of his atheist nature, his chosen presuppositions distort how he perceives any truth that he's given. The only thing that can ultimately change him is regeneration, and to this end, the presuppositionist seeks to change a person's presuppositions to be in conformity with biblical revelation. So, so, so just to, to, to boil all that down, presupposition is we're arguing from worldview. We're not, we're not trying to uh, convince the skeptic against his will by using facts and reason and arguments and logic we're just showing that those things couldn't exist without what he already knows to be true. For instance, we'll keep going. Nevertheless, when using presuppositional apologetics, things fall into place rather nicely. You could consider presuppositional apologetics to be kind of theory that you assume in order to explain the world around us. If you presuppose God's existence, the world makes sense. If you presuppose God's existence, the world makes sense. Since you can explain how we came to be, how there can be absolute laws of morality, why rationality is what it is, why facts and logic and knowledge exist. Christian presupposition, presuppositionalists deal with these issues and others very effectively. So another hypothetical conversation. I'm an atheist evolutionist. Prove to me there is a God. I don't think I can do that because of your presuppositions. Well, why not? Because your presuppositions won't allow you to examine without bias the evidence that I present you for God's existence. That's because there is no evidence for God's existence. I, you, you can tell when I'm an atheist and when I'm a Christian, the atheist kind of has the nasty voice, the Christian has the kind and patient voice, because that's always how it goes. See, there you go. You just confirm what I was saying. How so? 
Your presupposition is that there is no God. No matter what I might present to you to show his existence, you interpret it in a manner consistent with your presupposition, namely that there isn't a God. If I were to have a videotape of God coming down from heaven, you'd say it was a special effect. If I had a thousand eyewitnesses saying they saw him, you'd say it was mass hysteria. If I had Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in the New Testament, you'd say they were forged, dated incorrectly, or not real prophecies. I cannot prove anything to you since your presupposition won't allow it. I, I, I did watch a debate, and I forget who the debater was uh, at this moment, and it was Christian versus the atheist, and the atheist was uh, explaining away the the eyewitness testimony and the eyewitness accounts and the eyewitness records uh, for the, the post-resurrection appearings of Jesus Christ by basically stating that the disciples were hallucinating, that they they, they, they thought they saw Jesus, they really didn't see Jesus. And one, another point in the debate, the Christian uh, poses the question, what would it take for you to, what, what kind of evidence would you accept? Um, what would prove to you there was a God? And the atheist basically said, well, if he appeared to me, and if I saw him, and if I heard him, and the, and the, 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 the Christian quickly answered, but wouldn't you think you're hallucinating? He, he, he had explained away that very same kind of proof not 30 minutes prior in the debate. This is what we're talking about with presuppositions. Okay, Christian says to the atheist, your presupposition is limited. No, it's not. Yes, it is. Your presupposition cannot allow you to rightly determine God's existence from evidence, providing that there were factual proofs of his existence. Don't you see? If I did have incontrovertible proof, your presupposition would force you to interpret the facts consistently with your presupposition, and you wouldn't be able to see the proof. Now, let's give you some Bible verses and show you what we're talking about, some scriptures that line up with presuppositional apologetics. Psalm 119, verse number 89. Great chapter in the Word of God. 176 verses, longest chapter in the Bible, all about the Bible, all about God's Word. All but two of the 176 verses make a direct uh, statement regarding God's Word. Psalm 119, 89, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Thy faithfulness is unto all generations. Thou hast established the earth, and it abideth. They continue this day according to thine ordinances for all are thy servants. The earth that God established and that abides continues according to God's ordinances. According to God's ordinances. The earth, all the things they are in, all are thy servants. With that, and then we'll talk about it, with that, Jeremiah 33 and verse 25, Jeremiah 33, and verse 25, Thus saith the Lord, if my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinances of heaven and earth. And it continues in verse 26, but again this phrase, the ordinances of heaven and earth. What are, what are ordinances? Laws, laws that are observable and demonstrable that apply in all places and at all times. That is, they're universal and invariant. You can't touch them or deal with them. They are immaterial, abstract concepts, but they're real, and we all operate within the realm of these laws. What we're talking about with the ordinances mentioned in Psalm 119 and Jeremiah 33, we're talking about the laws of nature, the laws that govern the universe. Those were put in place 
by God. Many different types of laws and ordinances, the laws of life, the laws of chemistry, the laws of planetary motion, the laws of physics, the laws of mathematics, the the laws of logic which prescribe the correct chain of reasoning between truth claims. A Christian can account for these. Why do we have these laws? Why does the universe operate in the way that it does? Why is it governed by these unseen and abstract forces? Because God established it, because God made it that way. We can know some of God's thoughts because God revealed himself to us through the words of Scripture and the person of Jesus Christ. Think about this. The atheist who thinks the world came about by accident cannot account for laws of logic. He uses, he, he attempts to use logic in arguing against God, but if there weren't a God, he couldn't have the logical arguments to use against him. He cannot make sense of them within his own worldview. How could there be immaterial, universal, invariant, abstract laws in a chance universe formed by a big bang? Why should there be an absolute standard of reasoning if everything is simply molecules in motion? Most atheists have a materialistic outlook. I mean, they believe everything that exists is material, explained by material processes, but laws of logic are immaterial. You can't pull a law of logic out of the refrigerator. If atheistic materialism is true, there could be no laws of logic since they are immaterial. Thus, logical reasoning would be impossible. No one's denying that atheists are able to use reason and laws of logic. The point is that if atheism were true, the atheist would not be able to reason or use those laws of logic because such things would not exist or would not be meaningful. The, the fact the atheist is able to reason demonstrates that he's wrong. By using that which makes no sense given his worldview, the atheist being horribly inconsistent in order to argue against Christianity, you have to borrow from the Christian worldview. How could there be laws at all without a lawgiver? The atheist cannot account for the existence of laws of logic, why they're immaterial, why they're universal, why they don't change with time, how human beings can possibly know about them or their properties. But of course, all these things make perfect sense in the Christian system. Law of log laws of logic owe their existence to the biblical God. Yes, they're required to reason rationally, to prove things. So, so God must exist in order for reasoning to be possible. So the best proof of God's existence is that without him, we couldn't prove anything at all. The existence of the biblical God is the prerequisite for knowledge and rationality. Now this adds to our list of arguments for the existence of God. We've got the cosmological argument, the teleological argument, the ontological argument, the moral argument, and let me give you the transcendental argument. The transcendental argument follows from the presuppositional apologetic. This is an argument from worldview. This says that you have to borrow from the Christian worldview to make sense of the world. Truth must exist. Think about this. If I say there is no truth, I'm making a truth claim. If I'm right when I say it, if, if, if I say there is no truth and I'm right, well, then what I said is true, so truth exists. It's self-defeating. 
if I say there is no truth and I'm wrong, then what I said is untrue, so truth exists. Double negative equals a positive. Truth must exist. How does it exist if the entire universe is nothing more than a great big accident? Proverbs chapter 1 and verse number 7. We'll close our lesson with this. Proverbs chapter 1 and verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Without God, you can't know anything. That's why you walk on a college campus and try to witness to the students. I don't really believe you can know anything because they know they've got to make some attempt to be consistent with their world view. But to say you can't know anything is to make a truth claim. And if you're right, you're wrong. And if you're wrong, I'm, it, it, it just doesn't work. You can't know anything without God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge with God. The world around you makes perfect sense. So three types of apologetics. Classical apologetics, reason. Evidential apologetics, data. Presuppositional apologetics, worldview. In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. There's no reason not to believe it. Lord, thank you for your truth from your word. Help us to be ready to defend the Christian faith in our bold proclamation of the gospel. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.